Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. Christian Gorschel about his new book, Hitler and Mussolini. Um, Christian, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, Craig. It's great to talk to you. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, Christian, we always like to begin these interviews by having the author tell us a little bit, um, little bit about themselves. I'm a historian of modern Europe, especially of modern Italy and modern Germany. I um, teach at the University of Manchester in England, um, where I where I've been working on modern European history for a number of years now. I started my career at the University of Cambridge, where I did my PhD on suicide in Nazi Germany. That was a book that was published by Oxford University Press in 2009. Then I did some more research on the dynamics of Nazi repression and um, terror um, in pre-war Nazi Germany, and this resulted in a book um, before the Holocaust, um, concentration camps in Nazi Germany before the Holocaust, which I co-authored with Nikolaus Wachsmann. That's a book that came out with Nebraska University Press in 2012. Then my interest took me more into the um, context of European history. How does Nazi Germany fit into a broader European um, history? And this is how I became interested in the relationship between Nazi Germany and the older the more senior fascist dictatorship that was fascist Italy. And um, so I've been, I had to learn Italian for that book and I had to develop a new research agenda. So this is very much what I can say about myself, how I ended up doing that project. Um, so this this was a project that you came to later. This wasn't your dissertation or something you were interested in, in say, graduate school or any... Well, I've always been interested in always been interested in Italian history, but of course, um, it is, you're, you're in an even better position to study the um, history of a country if you know the language. So, after learning Italian, um, an, an entire new world of archival documents, of historiographical debates, of conferences, of conversations with colleagues in Italy became accessible to me. And um, the more we think about transnational history, the more we think about the um, descent into catastrophe not only of Germany, but of the European continent in the interwar period, the clearer it became to me that I had to extend my research to look at how Nazi Germany fit into a broader European context, hence my interest in in the um, history of Mussolini and Hitler, the two most prominent fascist leaders of the 20th century, who caused more damage than almost any other um, political leaders of the 20th century. Now, your, your book um, sort of takes a new approach on the fascist alliance and the relationship, particularly the personal relationship, uh, between Hitler and Mussolini. I'm wondering for our listeners if you could root your book in sort of its historiographical tradition. Um, what, what particular books are you, or authors are you responding to? Um, and, and so what, if, what are you trying to maybe correct about the, the narrative of of their relationship, and, and sort of what are your big historical questions with this book? The big historical question I wanted to answer was, um, to, the, first, the first big question I wanted to answer was, how much sense does it make to compare 
the Third Reich to other dictatorships um, of its period. Because um, since the late 1980s, early 1990s, the Holocaust has quite rightly emerged as the focal point of the historiography of the Third Reich. Still, and many historians would argue, and I would agree with them, that Nazi Germany was a unique form of a racist dictatorship. Racism, anti-Semitism stood at the heart of Nazi Germany. But this observation does not invalidate comparisons to other contemporaneous dictatorships. And... Um, the insight I gained was that we really have to think about how Nazi Germany came about, how um, how and what, if anything, the Nazis learned from fascist strategy in Italy, from from the process of seizing power. How does a dictatorship, a right far right dictatorship, come to power? So these were among my interests, and um, my book is very much a response to existing debates. I really want to go beyond the rather stale and circular debate, self-referential debate on generic fascism. We will never be able to define in one or two sentences what fascism was. We have to understand how fascism operated in practice. And I can't think of a better case study than the two most important fascist regimes of interwar Europe, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. The only study, I was surprised when I started work on my project, the only um, study of Mussolini and Hitler that goes beyond sensationalist accounts is the study by the British military historian, former spy during World War II, F.W. Deakin. That was a book that was published in 1962. It's called The Brutal Friendship. But the book um, is very much about the end of the relationship between Mussolini and Hitler, 1943-1945. There wasn't really anything. There is a group of German historians who have been working on the transnational history of fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. They have been studying networks of police officials. They've been studying networks of cultural agents, of writers, but nobody has asked the question about what was the relationship between these two classic fascist dictatorships at the top level. So um, there, there's not only one contribution I want to make, there are several. And um, if you ask me for the most important contribution I think this book is making is that it introduces an entirely new understanding of how we should view fascism, moving away from an obsession with theories of generic fascism, the consensus in fascist studies, the fascist minimum, to an understanding that puts the cultural history of fascist politics at the center of our attention. Did, did you consider um, wrapping fascist Spain into your study, or was that a matter of you didn't because of book length or language or uh, just not enough, you know, going Spain, if Spain features um, in my book. It has to, because it was the Spanish Civil War, one of the most profound experiences of the early 20th century that made um, a realignment between fascist and Italy and Nazi Germany possible. I wouldn't consider Spain and the Spanish regime of General Franco so much as a fascist regime because it relied more than the regimes in Italy and Germany on the support of the Catholic Church. Nevertheless, Franco's Spain features, it has to feature in my book, and um, this is one of the areas of research um, that need to be done in more detail, how, um, how we can um, take into consideration 
um, regimes which many historians have deemed as sort of rather unimportant. Few historians work on Spain after the end of the Spanish Civil War in 1939. Relatively few historians work on Spain after 1939, after the end of the Spanish Civil War. Fewer historians work on Portugal. So um, the uh, fascist alliance between Italy and Germany, of course, had ramifications, not only for Italy and Germany, had ramifications for the entirety of Europe um, under the heading under the propagandistic but very effective heading of creating a new order in Europe. And, um, part of this new order um, were other countries, um, including Bulgaria, Romania. There were also hopes to draw Spain into this alliance. Yeah, I think this is one of the things about your book that I was most um, fascinated by is that you did an excellent job of demonstrating how the how Spain and Ger I mean, excuse me, Italy and Germany, in particular, sort of impacted these other regimes in Europe. And I think people who read the book will see, you know, they'll learn things about different regions of Europe that they may not have thought were uh, as connected as they are. Um, so let's let's start from the beginning. Um, let's talk about Hitler and Mussolini um, at the beginning of their relationship. Sort of this period between 1922 and to 1933 before Hitler is chancellor Mussolini is sort of the you know he is the the leader of the fascist movement in Europe um, and uh, so let's talk about that a little bit and let's talk about how their their experiences in World War one sort of shaped them a little bit to start with many many listeners will you, you'll find it you'll find it unusual to think about um, to think about Italy um, serving as a precedent for Nazi Germany. It's very important for us to consider that in standard accounts of modern European history, in big textbooks, in um, television programs, in radio programs, Italy is very often relegated to the margins of European history. Italy um, was in many ways the political laboratory of modern Europe in the 19th century and in the 20th century. 1922, you have said it, Craig, it was in 1922 that the world's first fascist um, government came to power in Italy. October 1922, the king of Italy, Victor Emmanuel III, appoints Benito Mussolini prime minister of Italy. This was a momentous, a momentous appointment, which um, was not only important for Italy, but it was also an important signal for the right, for the far right across Europe. Who was Mussolini? A journalist, former socialist turned fascist, a veteran of World War I, who was Hitler in 1922. He was more or less a nobody. He had also fought in the trenches of World War I. He was the leader of the small, largely Bavarian, National Socialist Party. The relationship let alone an alliance between the small, insignificant Nazi party and the fascist party in Italy, which was now in government, was extremely unlikely for two reasons. The first reason was that Italy and Germany had been at war with each other between 1916 and 1918. There were lots of stereotypes against Italians in Germany, against um, Germans in Italy. The second reason why this alliance seemed so unlikely was that Hitler was really a nobody. What Hitler was trying to do in the years following 1922, when he heard of Mussolini's appointment as Prime Minister of Italy, was to jump on the bandwagon of fascism. That he was trying to legitimize the Nazi movement by making constant references 
to Mussolini, who was gradually emerging as a global political celebrity over the course of the 1920s. There wasn't so much a clear ideological momentum here why Hitler looked towards Italy for inspiration. Hitler also looked towards Turkey, where Ataturk was um, creating a dictatorship, a dictatorial regime. Hitler was simply trying to become famous in Germany, to become famous in Europe, and to legitimize his power by making constant references to other leaders. And Mussolini was, of course, particularly attractive to many in Germany, not only on the far right, not only amongst sort of far right fascistic war veterans, Rather, Mussolini's Italy served as a regime that had reached some kind of consensus between traditional elites and the new fascist party groups. Let me explain this in more detail. We have to remember that the fascist party in Italy, when Mussolini came to power, was a rather small movement. It was a movement bitterly divided within there were some factions which were more radical than others, but they were all preaching political violence. That was the common political denominator. They were divided that the fascist regime, as it started to emerge gradually in Italy from October 1922 onwards, was never a total dictatorship. Mussolini, as I have said before, had been appointed by the king and the army, the bureaucracy, traditional elites always supported Mussolini. For people in Germany, for people on the right in Germany, law-abiding middle-class Germans, a fascist regime um, modeled on Mussolini seemed extremely attractive for Germany, as the Weimar Republic was suffering from popular legitimacy. We shouldn't overdo the crisis of the Weimar Republic. We should do this when we start about 1932. Nevertheless, um, the fact that Mussolini's regime was a coalition between the fascist party and traditional elites made it quite attractive to many people in Germany and other countries of Europe as well, because it served as some kind of compromise between the traditional right and the new right, the fascist right. Yeah, I, and, and you mentioned it a little bit, um, but I think it's very important to talk a little bit about the role of the king in Italy, because um, he, he, he's an important character in in your story um he he wields influence even uh throughout um the, this period from 1922 all the way to the end um can you talk a, a, just a little bit about his relationship with Mussolini and and how he sort of at times maybe helped Mussolini didn't help Mussolini um I know you do a very good job in your book of of demonstrating at times Mussolini being very frustrated with the king and with the monarchy in, in sort of general? The most basic answer to your question, Craig, is that um, the official name of um, Italy throughout the period we are talking about, 1922 till 1943 and beyond, was the Kingdom of Italy. The king, Victor Emmanuel III, he had been the monarch since the early 20th century. He had led Italy into the First World War against Austria-Hungary and Germany. He was um, the official head of state. It was him who had appointed Mussolini in late October 1922 as head of the government. It was the king who throughout the period between 1922 and 1943, um, more or less backed Mussolini. There were very, very brief moments 
for example, during the crisis surrounding the assassination of the socialist deputy Matteotti in 1924, where the king briefly thought that he should fire Mussolini. But for the entire duration, except from these short stories, between 1922 and 1943, the monarchy, the king, backed fascism. Why was that? Because fascism was anti-Bolshevik. Fascism was against the political left. Fascism for for the monarchs, for, for, for the monarch, uh, for many monarchists around Europe, promised a strong defense against the perceived threat of the political left. Look at what had happened in Russia in 1917. Look at what had happened in Germany in November 1918, when the monarchs of Germany, not only the Kaiser, but also the king of Bavaria and other monarchs, had been deposed. So um, fascism was a very attractive um, political movement for European monarchs, for the Italian monarch. Having said that, um, as soon as um, fascism, as soon as Mussolini's government threatened to threatened um, the stability of the Italian monarchy in 1943, when Italy was about to lose the war, it was the king who took on the reins again, who took back the reins from Mussolini and he fired Mussolini on 25th of July 1943. So the king doesn't feature um, directly in many of the chapters of my book, but he always features implicitly. Hitler detested the king of Italy. Hitler detested monarchy as a form of government. He accused monarchs of being degenerate because of, inter because of their tendency to intermarry within their families. And um, Hitler constantly... Um, thought after 1933, after 1934, that the Nazi regime was superior to fascist Italy simply because in Nazi Germany after 1934, um, there was nobody to whom Hitler had to report after the death of Reich President von Hindenburg. And Mussolini was uh, very much feeling inferior to Hitler because Mussolini was always prime minister at the behest of the king, unlike Hitler, who was more or less in a complete... Um, um, in, a, in a position of complete control after 1934. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, let's 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 jump up a little bit um, to 1932. Um, Hitler becomes chancellor um, in sort of stunning fashion. Um, how did their? I mean, now Mussolini has to pay more attention to Hitler than he was in the mid 1920s, even the late 1920s. Um, how did their relationship start? Um, and then I'm going to ask specifically about some particular issues that sort of impacted their relationship. But but how did their relationship start, and, and particularly how did Hitler view want to approach Mussolini early on? Initially, Hitler tried to be recognized by Mussolini. Hitler thought that if he if he had some or some form of official recognition from Mussolini, for example, in the form of a signed autogram by Mussolini that this would legitimize the National Socialists as, as a movement officially authorized by the leader of the fascist party, the only fascist party that was in government at that time in Europe. So um, there, there's, a, there's a letter exchange in, between Mussolini and Hitler, where Hitler is really trying very hard to gain a signed autogram from Mussolini. It takes Mussolini a long time. It's only after September 1930 when the National Socialists really have their first electoral breakthrough in the Reichstag election, September 1930, that Mussolini is beginning to develop a keener interest in Hitler. Hitler is trying desperately to seek Mussolini's attention. He's desperately trying to 
be received by Mussolini in Rome. Mussolini is the head of the Italian government. Mussolini knows that he cannot simply receive the um, head of the National Socialist Party, a party which wants to overthrow the legitimate Weimar Republic, because he, Mussolini knows that as soon as he receives Hitler, the leader of an aggressive opposition party in Germany, he would risk um, it, Italy's diplomatic relation, good relationship with Germany. So um, Mussolini, um, Mussolini's attitudes towards Hitler, they are very strategic. And um, he, Mussolini only begins to develop a keen interest in Hitler when Mussolini knows that the Weimar Republic is facing serious problems, especially when it comes to the year 1932 and um, the Great Economic Depression when there are at least six million people um, officially registered as unemployed in Germany. And, and you, would you say that Hitler's sort of feelings on Mussolini were more, at, particularly at first, uh, admiration and Hitler less strategic. always admired Mussolini. Hitler always admired Mussolini. But I'm asking um, an important question in my book: How did Mussolini, How did Hitler know about Mussolini? How did Hitler and other Nazi officials know what was going on in Italy? Most Nazi leaders had not travelled to Italy. Hitler didn't travel to Italy until 1934. The argument I put forward in my book is that Hitler's view of Mussolini, Hitler's view of the fascist dictatorship in Italy was almost entirely the result of fascist propaganda. A strong cult of Mussolini had been developing in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, also in the United States over the course of the 1920s, very much controlled by fascist propaganda um, institutions. A strong visual cult of the Duce, for example, a strong cult of writing biographies of Duce as the strong man of Europe. So Hitler's view of Mussolini was an extremely idealistic view. It was a perspective tainted by fascist propaganda. Hitler did not really understand what was going on in fascist Italy. Hitler did not understand the ambivalent position of Mussolini as head of government who had to report to the king. Hitler did not understand the rather shaky position of the fascist dictatorship as a coalition between radical elements within the fascist party and traditional elites such as the monarchy, the army, and the bureaucracy. Hmm. Uh, so if we could expand a little bit on some of the, the sort of political, big political issues that were going on in 33, 34, 35 that were sort of impacting this alliance, and, and specifically I'm talking about the South Triol, Austria, and Ethiopia. Um, I think the South Triol is very fascinating because it's one of the only, the only German-speaking area that Hitler didn't want to annex, sort of immediately, um, and and I think it's important to discuss as to why, um, and how that how that area impacts other foreign policy issues in Austria and, and then Ethiopia. The um, to start with the um, the absolute top priority for Hitler and the Nazis, upon coming to power in January 1933, was to consolidate Nazi power at home at any cost. Unlike the fascists in Italy, who had taken years and years and years to consolidate their power, they never consolidated it completely, as we have just seen. Hitler and the Nazis were working extremely hard and ruthlessly 
brutally using massive violence, murdering political opponents, locking them up in makeshift concentration camps in 1933. This was the top priority for Hitler and the Nazis in 1933, 1934. On a foreign policy level, on a diplomatic level, Hitler tried to revise the Versailles Treaty. He tried to undermine the post-war order created um, at the Paris Peace Conference and underwritten by the League of Nations. This was the big context in which um, we have to locate the South Tyrol issue. What was the South Tyrol issue? The South Tyrol, called in Italian Alto Adige, was an area with a majority German-speaking population that had belonged to Austria-Hungary until um, the end of World War I. This area was annexed by Italy after the end of the First World War. Um, a forced Italianization um, scheme was started by the Italian government. For example, school children had to, um, were instructed in Italian rather than German. And many German nationalists in Austria and above all in Germany were campaigning for a return of um, Alto Adige, South Tyrol, to Austria and to a greater Germany. This was, of course, rejected by the Italian government. Interestingly, Hitler made it made it known very early on in the early 1920s that he thought that Alto Adige, South Tyrol, should belong to Italy. He thought that an alliance with fascist Italy was more important than returning, the reincorporating Alto Adige into Austria or Greater Germany. Many Nazi leaders were extremely unhappy with Hitler's stance on the South Tyrol Alto Adige. Some of them even quit the Nazi party. So here was a paradox. Hitler was always campaigning for a greater Germany that all German speakers, all the so-called ethnic Germans, Volksdeutsche, should live within the borders of the German Reich. But here, for strategic reasons, in the case of Alto Adige, South Tyrol, he made a strong exception because Hitler thought that an alliance with Italy was more important in the, great, in the greater scheme of things. And, and, and this policy exception wouldn't apply to Austria, uh, obviously, um, even though Mussolini actually had strong objections to Germany and Austria sort of merging into one state, correct? This was this was another this was another um, big issue. So um, when Hitler comes to power in 1933, uh, an alliance between Italy and Germany looks completely unlikely. Remember, both countries have fought on opposite sides in the First World War. Italy had been Germany's ally until 1915 in the so-called Triple Alliance with Austria-Hungary. Italy then quits the Triple Alliance. Many Germans call Italians traitors for this. At that time. Then, in 1933, when Hitler comes to power, the other issue that really stands in the way between an alliance, any talk of an alliance between Italy and Germany, is of course the Austrian question. Um, the um, German-speaking part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, called uh, the Republic of Austria, um, serves for Mussolini as a buffer state between Italy and Germany. And Mussolini, until the uh, mid to late 1930s, guarantees the sovereignty of Austria. He says it's absolutely unthinkable that Austria can be re uh, that Austria can be annexed by Germany. In 1934, Austrian Nazis um, stage a putsch in Austria, 
against the Austrian government and Mussolini is so furious that he sends troops to the northern border of Italy with Austria to send a clear sign to Nazi Germany that Italy will not tolerate um, an annexation of Austria into the Third Reich. Um, but ultimately, that they have to Mussolini has to cave on Austria, uh, in part because of Ethiopia and their invasion in Ethiopia and the and the sort of the stretching of their military strength. One of the most important differences between fascist Italy and Nazi Germany was the degree of rearmament. Of course, the German economy was much more advanced. The German economy was far more industrialized than the Italian economy was. So um, Italy was constantly had constantly been trying to punch above its weight to become a great power. Part of this was the development of um, an imperialist colonial agenda. So um, for many Italian nationalists, not only for fascists, one of the major humiliations, national humiliations, that was the word they used, was the defeat of Italy in 1896 at Adova in Ethiopia. So Ethiopia was one of the um, last remaining African countries that had successfully withstood colonization. In the early 1930s, Italian plans for an attack um, on Ethiopia um, take more and more shape, and Mussolini wants to push into Ethiopia. The um, Western allies, Italy is of course still considered part of Western Europe. Italy is one of the leading powers in the League of Nations at that time. France and Britain do not want to allow um, fascist Italy to go ahead as planned with the invasion of Ethiopia, so Mussolini has no choice but to look for another ally, to look for another suitable ally. So. Um, the um, war against Ethiopia, which was one of the most brutal wars, this was a war in which Italy illegally used poison gas. This was a war which some historians have recently characterized as a war of racial extermination. This is a war that brings fascist Italy and Nazi Germany together more closely. Both countries need an ally, and um, both countries, the leaders of both countries, think that they have a similar ideology. It's not so much the ideology that brings them together, it's simply their strategic interest. Ideology plays some role, but it doesn't play, it's, it's, not, the only, it's not the only issue that brings both countries more closely together. Right, right. So you, you would say that the Italian invasion of Ethiopia made it impossible, because um, you do mention in, earlier in the book and um, that you know Mussolini sort of kept his eye on France, kept his eye on Britain, thinking that they could be an alliance maybe uh, at some point at some in, in some shape but with ethiopia that that no longer becomes a, po a realistic possibility and so it sort of drives what britain, in what britain and france do what britain and france do after the um, italian invasion of ethiopia is to get the league of nations to um, place italy under sanctions crucially the delivery of oil absolutely crucial mm. for running um, cars, for running tanks, for running other military mm. equipment. Um, oil is excluded from the League of Nations sanctions. But Italy very much appears as the bad guy on the block um, after the invasion of Ethiopia. So um, Mussolini, um, Mussolini um, is a master of performance, is a master of diplomatic posturing. 
So um, he never he never entirely burns the bridges, as it were, with Britain. And until 1939, when the so-called Pact of Steel is signed between fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, Mussolini pretends, at least in public, that Italy is keeping its options open. After the invasion of Ethiopia, um, an alliance between Italy and Britain is extremely unlikely. But let's not forget that um, the traditional ally of Britain in continental Europe was Italy. On the, or put differently, Italy's most traditional ally since the um, 19th century was Britain, not Germany. Hmm. Yeah, that's I, I, good. I think that's, yeah, it's an important sort of benchmark um, that I don't know if a lot of people are super familiar with. Um, so after the invasion, we have Hitler and Mussolini sort of start to exchange visits um, in 1937 and 1938. Um, you could talk a little bit, because I was fascinated by this when I was reading this chapter, um, the sort of pageantry that these visits, um, you know, the, the amount of pomp and circumstance and how they tried to sort of one-up each other in terms of making these visits grand. And I'm wondering if you can, you can talk about one why um, this was such a big uh, big thing for them to, to, to do. And, and I'll ask some other follow-ups. The, um, the massive visits um, of 1937 and 1938 um, could be seen as mere propaganda. In my book, I argue that it's a mistake to see these massive visits. Mussolini visits Germany in 1937. Hitler visits Italy in 1938 as mere propaganda. These visits were such strong displays of unity between Italy and Germany. They were such powerful displays, which brought in millions and millions of Germans and Italians, that it was impossible for either side, Italy or Germany, to not go forward with some form of cooperation on alliance. Let me explain this in more detail. When Mussolini visits Germany in 1937, the Nazi regime puts on the most expensive show it's ever organized, apart from the Berlin Olympics in 1936. New railway stations are being built. An extremely, an extremely detailed itinerary is developed for Mussolini. The message is that the Nazi messages that this is not a, a traditional state visit. Of course, Mussolini is not entitled to a state visit. We've just heard that Mussolini was never head of state. He was only head of government. So this visit is planned as a great communion between the Italian and German peoples, as Nazi propaganda puts it. Nazi propaganda, and aided by fascist officials in Italy, gives this visit a different spin. The, the message is that this is not a, a diplomatic meeting behind closed doors, a secretive diplomatic meeting of two men um, doing some secret negotiation, you know, two men in stiff collars, ties, and, um, you know, um, pinstripe suits. No, the message is this is a meeting of the two leaders who are talking face-to-face -face in public, surrounded by the millions of German and Italian peoples. This is, of course, propaganda, but this is such a powerful propaganda. This, this visit creates such powerful images cinematic images, newsreel, photographs, which are broadcast in, um, in Germany and in Italy, but also throughout the world. So let's remember, both regimes have one thing in common. They believe in, in, in the redemptive quality of war. They believe that the Versailles Treaty has to be revoked. They believe that 
the world needs a new order, a new order not based on collective security as manifested by the League of Nations. They believe that the world needs a new order based on a social Darwinist understanding of the survival of the fittest, social Darwinist understanding that the strongest country can subjugate other countries. This is the choreography, the message of the choreography of the 1937 visit, which is even even um, you know, made stronger by Italian, by the Italian organization of Hitler's visit in May 1938 to Italy. So there is a rivalry between both regimes. Who is going to outdo the other in organizing the most pompous, the most sort of grandiose visit? And I've studied for months, it took me months to study the preparations for Hitler's visit to Italy alone. Historians have studied this visit before, rather superficially perhaps, and they have argued that this visit was pure propaganda. It wasn't pure propaganda. If it had been, if it had been mere propaganda, why then did the fascist regime, why did the Italian state fill thousands and thousands of files documenting, detailing every every single item on the agenda? Hmm. I, so, so what I'm saying here is that my approach, which could be called the cultural history of diplomacy of fascism, that really unlocks in, 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 in a new perspective on understanding how um, propaganda, how the display of unity and friendship created by the visits 1937-1938 set in train a very powerful and sinister political dynamic. Once Hitler had been to Italy, he couldn't say... Well, I don't want to know anything of Mussolini. He had to, he was sort of more or less forced to go ahead with some form of alliance with fascist Italy if he wanted to save his face. The same, of course, applies to Mussolini after his 1937 visit to Germany. So um, we are not only talking about propaganda, it's not just propaganda. The performances of fascist unity created a very, very strong political momentum. This was not lost on American, French or British diplomats and um, journalists. And the clearest example of how this fascist Nazi unity worked was the September 1938 Munich conference. In my book, there is a photograph of the Munich conference, a very famous photograph, which shows Hitler, Mussolini and the Italian foreign minister Ciano posing in uniform and Daladier, the French prime minister and Mr. Chamberlain, the British prime minister are standing um, on the side um, wearing um, stiff collars and pinstriped suits. The message of this picture is, as was the message of the Munich conference, was that the future of Europe, the future of the European continent, if not of the world, um, was with the fascist Nazi new order rather than with parliamentary democracy. So Western observers were extremely concerned about um, about the choreography, about the performances developed in 1937 and 1938. And these performances continue more or less, although in a different form, until the very end of the war, until 1944, when Mussolini and Hitler meet for the last time. Yeah, I want to I want to ask a follow up on because uh, you, you mentioned earlier in your in your answers, um, how German the German public viewed Italians and vice versa. Um, did, did these performances have any meaningful impact on, on public opinion? The, you know, the average Italian, the average German, did, did their views of each other change? 
it's extremely difficult to talk sure. about public opinion when we talk about the fascist and Nazi dictatorships because what both dictatorships had done was more or less to destroy the public sphere. Um, strict censorship was introduced, freedom of speech was abolished. So if we try to talk about popular opinion, um, if we try to see, we, 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 can, we can actually answer your question, Craig. So according to reports on popular opinion commissioned by the regimes, commissioned by different agencies of the regimes, for example, the security service of the SS, the Sicherheitsdienst, the SD, according to such reports, according to Gestapo reports, according to reports by exiled social democrats, the banned Social Democratic Party sent some extremely courageous agents into the Third Reich to gauge um, insights into what ordinary people thought, what working class people thought. So according to all of these popular opinion reports, the negative views Germans had of Italians were not really transformed by these by these grandiose visits. Nevertheless, the, all, all of these reports stated that um, millions and millions of Germans had been roped into these spectacles of sort of welcoming Mussolini to Germany. So these visits did not, it would be unfair, it would be unjust to say that these visits did not have any tangible impact on popular opinion. When we look at um, popular opinion reports created by agencies of the fascist state in Italy, the secret police, for example, we can make similar observations. What remains to be said, though, is that um, this alliance was extremely short-lived. If we take 1937, 1938, 1939, the signing of the Pact of Steel as a starting point, and the um, relationship is really in tatters in 1943 after the fall of Mussolini. So this was an extremely short-lived relationship, and this short-lived relationship did not manage to um, overwhelmingly transform um, national stereotypes of the Germans in Italy, of the Italians in Germany. You mentioned uh, before the Munich conference, and I want to I want to go back to it just for a minute. Uh, the Munich conference was extremely important for Mussolini. Um, that that comes through in your book. Um, you know, Mussolini was still at the time trying to make Italy a great power um, and sort of himself a great leader. Uh, if you could talk about how Mussolini approached the Munich conference, what were his goals? I mean, Hitler's goals were were pretty straightforward, and and you know the British and the French points of views were pretty straightforward. What was Mussolini really trying to achieve? The, the Munich conference was um, was convened in in in, in late September nineteen thirty eight to to settle the um, fate of Czechoslovakia. Um, because Nazi Germany had been wanting to incorporate German-speaking territories on the Czechoslovak-German border for a long time. So um, this conference was convened. It was held in Munich in the Nazi party headquarters in late September 1938. Um, France, Britain, Italy and Germany were present. Czechoslovakia wasn't. Mussolini's goals for the Munich conference were to have Italy recognized as the fourth great power in Europe. This was a major victory, a major triumph for Mussolini when you look at Italian popular opinion that Italy, for the first time really under Mussolini's rule, had been recognized as the fourth great power in Europe. Mussolini 
in the run-up to the Munich conference, as the crisis over Czechoslovakia escalates, September 1938, he gives a lot of speeches across Italy um, in which he expresses Italian solidarity with Nazi Germany. He knows that many people in Italy, most people in Italy, do not want Italy to go to war on Nazi Germany's side. What he also does, and he resents it actually, but in Mussolini's Mussolini's role in the Munich conference has often been distorted because Mussolini, when he returns to Italy after the conclusion of the Munich conference, is celebrated, is feted by Italians as the savior of peace. Mussolini resented this reputation being the savior of peace because he wanted Italy to go to war. So, um, so here you can see the ambivalence. Mussolini had Italy recognized as the fourth great power in Europe, but he didn't really want he didn't really want um, peace. He wanted war, but he was clever enough um, at this time, September, early October 1938, to know that Italy wasn't ready for a major conflagration. So there is a lot of uh, warmongering. There's a lot of belligerency. But Mussolini is also realistic enough to know that Italy at this time was simply not prepared for a large-scale war on Nazi Germany's side. Uh, you have mentioned the Pack of Steel a few times now, and I, I think we should probably move to that. Uh, and can you explain uh, what it is uh, and how it came about? The Pact of Steel, after, um, after, after long, long, long lobbying by Nazi Germany, Italy finally agrees to enter into a military alliance with Nazi Germany. Mussolini wanted um, this alliance to be called the Pact of Blood, to make it sound really aggressive, to make it sound really belligerent, really um, macho, as it were. Um, negotiations were held. Not between Mussolini and Hitler, interestingly, but between Giano, Mussolini's son-in-law, and Italian foreign minister, and Joachim von Ribbentrop, the German foreign minister and an extreme Nazi. So um, the Pact of Steel is one of the most aggressive military treaties in modern European history. It um, it compelled um, it compelled each signatory to go to war, um, helping the other signatory in the case of any military conflict. This was an extremely risky pact. Um, of course, it gave Nazi Germany a lot of backing for, for the Nazi plan to annex uh, large parts of Eastern Europe. But it was extremely risky for fascist Italy. So um, many, um, many fascists, many Italian officials subsequently said after the end of fascism, oh, Mussolini made a great mistake here. I think this view again distorts the role of Italian fascism because Italian fascism was incredibly aggressive. It was incredibly belligerent. So um, the Pact of Steel underwrote the fascist dictatorship in Italy because it made it more and more aligned to Nazi Germany. And let's not forget when we've talked about the Munich Conference, we've talked about the Pact of Steel. Shortly after the Munich conference, the Nazis stage the Kristallnacht pogrom. They murder about 1,000 Jews. They arrest up to 30,000 Jewish men in concentration camps to signal that Jewish life will no longer be possible in Nazi Germany. Let's not forget that around the same time, racial legislation is being tightened up in fascist Italy, racial legislation has been introduced in Italy since sort of um, the summer of 1938. So you, you, 
clearly 1938 is a major turning point for both fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Both regimes are becoming more aggressive on an international level. They're also becoming more aggressive on a domestic level. They are becoming even more racist than they were before. Can you talk a little, expand on that a little bit about the, the differences in racial policies between the two regimes, whereas, you know, Nazi Germany sort of racism is at the, the center of that regime. Um, it's a little different for Mussolini, although definitely a racist and an anti-Semite, um, not as central to his regime as it is for Hitler. You, this, this is correct. This is correct. So, um, but but then again, we have to we have to think very carefully about the different role of racism in fascist Italy. We have to remember that fascist Italy already had a colonial empire. Italy had a colonial empire, a small colonial empire, when Mussolini came to power. If the racism in Italy um, was very much motivated by an imperialist, colonialist form of racism directed against um, Arab and Berber populations in um, Italian-occupied Libya, a massively brutal campaign of uh, euphemistically called the reconquest of Libya in the 1920s, massive colonial racial violence in the other Italian colonies, and of course, above all, in Ethiopia in the war that starts in 1935, is officially concluded in 1936, but this war really continues, guerrilla warfare, extreme racist violence dispensed by Italian troops against Ethiopians. For example, in 1937, after the failed assassination attempt on the Italian Viceroy Marshal Graziani, one of the um, major Italian war criminals. For many decades after the Second World War, Historians like Renzo Di Felice, the biographer of Mussolini, argued that um, it was impossible to compare fascist Italy and Nazi Germany with each other in a meaningful way because of the absolute centrality of racism, racism and anti-Semitism for the Nazis. People like Di Felice argued that for um, fascist Italy, um, racism had a more functional role to play. I'm not so sure whether they are right. Racism played an extremely central role in both regimes. But of course, we also have to bear in mind that it was Nazi Germany, not fascist Italy, that was responsible for the um, for the most um, for the most appalling racial atrocity of the 20th century, the Holocaust. So race was important, and racism, in discourses of racial difference, of racial exclusion, played a, played an important role for both regimes. But um, of course. Um, the role of anti-Semitism, if, if, that, if that was your question, and that was, of course, different for the Nazis. Anti-Semitism was central from day one of their movement for um, the fascists in Italy, where Mussolini was undeniably an anti-Semite. Um, anti-Semitism became more pronounced as fascist Italy was developing closer bonds with Nazi Germany. I'm not saying here at all that um, we should see fascist anti-Semitism, that we should see the introduction of racial legislation almost exactly 80 years ago, 1938, as the result of Nazi pressure on fascist Italy. But clearly, by introducing racial legislation, which was, by the way, signed off by the king, so it wasn't only a fascist project, it was really a project supported by the Kingdom of Italy, um, Italian political elites wanted to show some greater affinity with Nazi Germany. But the roots of the Italian racial legislation, they have to be located in the practice of um, colonial racism rather than 
simply in sort of this realignment with Nazi Germany. Um, uh, no, thank you for that explanation. I think that that's very helpful because this is, uh, you know, definitely a critical issue uh, in your book and for the history of this period. So, um, so now let's let's jump ahead a little bit to uh, the beginning of the war, sort of the last phase of their relationship from sort of thirty nine to forty three. Um, how did their relationship change um, with the winds? You know, with the war. Um, obviously, when Italy became less important. Or the war, their relationship was going to change dramatically. Um, and so let's, let's talk about that really uh, quickly. We, we, have to, we, we, have, we have to think about um, 1st of September 1939, Nazi Germany invades Poland, um, thereby triggering the Second World War. On 3rd of September 1939, France and Britain declare war on Nazi Germany. They have warned Nazi Germany in that it if Nazi Germany, if, if, if you Nazis invade Poland, and we, France and Britain, will declare war on, war on you. That happens. Hitler, Hitler has been trying over the course, over the, um, over the course of August of 1939 to, um, to win Mussolini's support in the war against Poland, in the war against France and Britain. Hitler is surprised that France and Britain declare war on him on 3rd of September. Nevertheless, Hitler really wanted Mussolini to back him. Hitler is very disappointed when Italy um, refuses to join the Second World War. It, at this time, it's still a European war. Why does Mussolini, why does Mussolini's Italy not join the war in, in 1939? The answer is simple. Italy is not prepared for war. Um, Italy doesn't have the military infrastructure. Italy doesn't have... Um, a war economy on a scale required for a large-scale conflagration. Um, as Nazi Germany conquers more and more territories over the course of 1939, 1940, blitzkrieg victories, lightning victories, um, as Nazi propaganda called them, over the Benelux countries, over the Scandinavian countries, over France, Mussolini but other members of the Italian political elite, including representatives of the monarchy and of the army, um, begin to think very, very carefully that if they do not join the war sooner, um, rather sooner than later, no booty will be left for Italy. There had been a long plan um, you know, held by Italian nationalists, not only by fascists, to seize um, parts of southern France, um, which many Italian nationalists thought were Italian, like the um, area called Savoy, Savoia. There were plans to incorporate it in, in French colonies into the Italian colonial empire. So um, um, Hitler begins to put quite a lot of pressure on Mussolini to join the war. There is a lot of correspondence. There, there are several meetings on the Brenner Pass between Italy and Germany, the new border between Italy and Germany after the annexation of Austria. And um, Finally, on 10th of June 1940, just before Nazi Germany um, successfully concludes the campaign against France, um, Italy, the Kingdom of Italy, declares war on the Republic of France. Mussolini gives a speech um, um, of the balcony of his residence, the Palazzo Venezia, surrounded by seemingly enthusiastic crowds declaring war on France and Britain. Italy fights an extremely disastrous campaign against France and they make they hardly make any territorial gains. So Hitler is actually quite disappointed with fascist Italy's military performance and um, Mussolini thinks, you know, 
the strategy not only of Mussolini, of other military leaders in Italy is that Italy could fight a parallel war, a war parallel to the Nazi war, a parallel war in the Mediterranean to incorporate parts of the Balkans, to incorporate in particular Greece. So Italy starts a campaign against Greece on 28th of October 1940, which is the anniversary of the March on Rome, after which Mussolini had come to power in 1922. Hitler um, immediately um, travels to Florence to discuss the um, invasion of Greece with Mussolini. He doesn't try to talk him out of it, as some some legends suggest. But um, it, it becomes clear over the course of the disastrous war in the Italian war in the Balkans that Italy won't be able to fight a successful parallel war. So there is a meeting in early 1941 between Mussolini and Hitler in Hitler's mountain residence near Berchtesgaden, the Berghof, where Hitler gives um, a dressing down to Mussolini and says, you know, from now on, Germany will more or less sort of dictate um, what Italian troops have to do, not only in the Balkans, but also in North Africa. So in, in the hope of a Mussolini's hope of a parallel war is dashed. And um, some historians quite rightly call the Italian campaign after 19, early 1941 a subaltern war, where Italy is not really um, an ally of Germany on the same footing. It's a subaltern ally. Hmm. So, yeah, so this this moment is sort of where their relationship and now and, and he treats Mussolini sort of in this secondary role personally for the rest of the, the war. Um. Hitler was always trying. Hitler was always trying to be diplomatic and to be correct towards Mussolini. He even passes a de decree to all Wehrmacht soldiers in, in at around that time, in which members of the German army, the German armed forces, are implored. They're basically told to be more polite towards um, their Italian allies because many German soldiers, German officers, German MCOs, German soldiers, they hold. Um, extremely strong resentment against their Italian allies. They accuse them of being lazy, of being effeminate, of being cowardly. So Hitler has to intervene. But the very fact that Hitler had to intervene showed that this alliance was on very shaky grounds. There were moments, though, where this alliance between Italy and Germany worked rather well, contrary to post-war myths peddled by Italian veterans of the Barbarossa campaign against the Soviet Union, there was at times quite a close collaboration between German and Italian troops in the war on the Eastern Front. The war on the Eastern Front, the Barbarossa campaign, as the Nazis had called it, gave um, a short boost to the fascist regime because this war was fought against Bolshevism. The Catholic Church also supported the war against the Soviet Union. and This was, as we know, a war of racial extermination. So seeing Italian soldiers on the Eastern Front as poor victims of the Nazis is inaccurate. Um, this is part of the post-war myth um, of the evil German uh, versus the good Italian. So if we historicize the Second World War from that perspective, if we try to, if we are aware that there, there has been a lot of myth-making, we arrive at a much more complex picture. Of course, Nazi atrocities um, were at a much, much larger scale, but Italian troops, to a smaller degree, also um, 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 took part in atrocities on the Eastern Front against civilians. Um, well, we're coming up to almost an hour, so as a way to sort of wrap up discussion of your book, 
Um, I want to know if you could uh, give our listeners one or two big things you would like them to take away, either from listening to this podcast or hopefully going out and getting the book and reading the book. The first thing um, um, I would like to say is that um, the, um, we, um, my book shows that we can understand um, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany much better if we put it into a comparative perspective. If we look um, at the comparative and transnational history of fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, this also allows us to see um, how Hitler um, went about his leadership and inspired by Mussolini and vice versa. So this is the first point that um, we, we can sharpen our understanding of either regime if we if we have this comparative perspective. The second point is that um, there are simply so many stories in this book, um, some extremely depressing stories, because um, this was a depressing relationship which was key to um, the ways in which the Second World War unfolded. The alliance between fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, thank goodness, failed in the end. At the end of the Second World War, liberal democracy prevailed, supported by the Soviet Union, one should add, um, to, be, to be historically fair. However, for a while, if we look at a world map of early 1942, it seemed likely that the Axis alliance Italy, Germany, and their Asian ally, Japan, might win the war. So the idea of a new order, this idea which, was, which Mussolini and Hitler represented so aggressively, for a while it seemed likely that the new order of war, brutality, atrocities, and subjugation might prevail in the world. So my book gives pause and um, lets us think in, in a historically imaginative way about what may have happened if these regimes had won the upper hand. Well, uh, fascinating. Um, before I let you go, I always like to ask one final question. Now that this book is done on the shelves available to buy, um, what are you working on now? The idea of the new order and um, the idea of a global new order interests me quite a lot at the moment. And um, it's tempting to look to look at the Axis Alliance in the European context. It's difficult enough, um, as I experienced as I was writing this book, but um, trying to extend my research um, to include um, the non-European parts of the world, especially in Southeast Asia and East Asia, that is something that interests me a lot at the moment. Oh, fascinating! Um, well, Christian, I want to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show. Um, it was lovely to have you. I also want to thank everybody for listening, um, and I definitely recommend that you pick up his book, uh, Mussolini and Hitler, The Forging of the Fascist Alliance. Um, pick it up, read it. Um, I think you'll get a lot of it. And I want to thank everyone for listening, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>